This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. One of the root causes of this fragmentation is actually a lack of cooperation. This in turn increases fragmentation in society and leads even more to short-term and self-serving policymaking. That's Klaus Schwab, founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum on the need to bring people together. Details coming up. Also, a road crash in northern Senegal kills at least 20 people. China defends its lending practices. And Americans remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today. All these and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Had he lived, Martin Luther King Jr. would be 94 year, years old this year. His life was cut short by an assassin in 1968. Nila Kuwaita is a pan-Africanist and an activist. He says Dr. King remains a testament to the enduring impact he made during his short time on Earth. I think, you know, it's almost difficult to put into words how important his accomplishments were and, and, and the enduring legacy that he left. One of the things that hits me about him is how young he was when the, the short time that he, he had on, on this earth, less than 40 years, and he did so much. He, he was everything. I mean, he was brilliant. He was insightful. He was courageous. He was energetic. This weekend, even when I've been listening to his, watching his videos, I'm also struck that he had a sense of humor. He can put things so well and articulate that he made you laugh. But, you know, I'm an Africa activist, basically a self-appointed person that says, we, the African immigrants in the United States, we need to study the history of black people, the 400 years black people have been in this country for all kinds of reasons. But a big reason is that it is so inspiring what they have achieved. And there have been other great black leaders in the U.S. But I think that if you try to them in a hierarchy, assess them, rank them. Dr. King has to come very close to the top. And I use, for all of the things he has done, part of how I use him also is to say to us, the African immigrants here, that we are supposed to serve our continent and uh, the, the Black diaspora. And we need to be looking at people like Dr. King. So another thing for me is that 1963 speech, you know, his invitation for the entire nation through his, you know, oratory uh, at the March yeah. on Washington for jobs and freedom to join a mass movement with racial justice at its center. Uh, he was mm -hmm. such a galvanizing force. Indeed he was. And, you know, especially that August 28, 1963 speech from the Lincoln Memorial. Um, it's one of the ones that I listened to. I watched again on video over the weekend, and I'm agreeing with you totally, but one of the markets that I'll add to that about how powerful that speech was, I have read elsewhere that at the time, President John Kennedy and his brother, 
Robert Francis Kennedy, the Attorney General, they were in the White House because they were sort of worried. They, you know, they support. They wanted to support Dr. King. They were afraid of a backlash and all that. But they watched the speech. They had tried to say to them, "Don't come to Washington," but they did come. And Dr. King gave that speech, and President Kennedy and his brother said, "Oh my." We wish that we were so gifted in using oratory. And I have to tell you, my brother, I was sitting here thinking, these are the two most powerful people in the United States. They are rich white men who are the president and his brother, the attorney general, and yet they are envying this guy who is engaged in a terrible struggle where people have tried to kill him, they are putting obstacles. He's fighting for downtrodden black people. But his oratory was so uplifting and so powerful that even the president envied him. And Kennedy himself was a very good speech giver. If you look at some of the things Kennedy said in Berlin, but he looked at he listened to Dr. King. So it was high praise coming from John Kennedy, the president. So I think yes, that speech was absolutely uplifting. I will only add that there are so many of his speeches that absolutely inspire me. So I look at others like I've been to the mountaintop, the the drum major for peace. You know, he even, you know, he went to Ghana for Ghana's independence. And when he came back, he said, the Africans fighting to get their independence, he is inspired by that. Okay, and that makes me very proud as an African. So I don't want to go on too much, but it's hard to put his accomplishment in words for so short a life. So the image that comes to my mind is we need to see him like a shooting star. He was here for such a short time and he did so much. There was Nila Kuwaita, a Pan-Africanist and activist. He talked to me from Washington, D.C. More than 2,700 world leaders will seek solutions for multiple global crises when they convene at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in the posh Swiss Alpine village of Davos this week. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. This auspicious gathering includes 52 heads of state, leaders in business, finance, and culture, as well as humanitarians and members of civil society from 130 countries. More than 5,000 Swiss Army soldiers will be on hand to guarantee security and ensure any protests do not get out of hand. The theme of this year's meeting is cooperation in a fragmented world. After emerging from three years of pandemic isolation, delegates once again will be meeting in person. During the week, they will address critical political, economic and social issues that demand urgent attention. Klaus Schwab is founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. He says this personal interaction will create the necessary level of trust to bring people together. One of the root causes of this fragmentation is actually a lack of cooperation. This in turn increases fragmentation in society and leads even more to short-term and self-serving policymaking. 
It's a truly vicious circle. Schwab says the erosion of trust between the government and business sectors must be stopped. He says cooperation must be reinforced and conditions for a strong and durable recovery created. Managing director of the forum, Mirak Jusek, says world leaders will be encouraged to work together on such interconnected issues as energy, climate, and nature. He says discussion on the economy and society will take center stage. On the economy, we're going to be putting a lot of emphasis on infrastructure, and particularly how do we make sure that the investments around infrastructure, particularly around clean energy infrastructure, how do we make sure that this leads to new growth, growth that is more inclusive and makes us more resilient um, in the future. Of course, we'll also be looking at social vulnerabilities that are stemming from these crises. Dignitaries attending the meeting include German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. US President Joe Biden will not be coming to Davos. However, US Special Presidential Envoy for Climate John Kerry will be present. A high-level delegation from Ukraine is expected to come to Davos. Forum officials say their names are not being disclosed for security reasons. They say several sessions related to the war in Ukraine will be held. They add Russia is not expected to attend. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Many more violent incidents linked to extremist groups occurred in Benin's north last year than the government has officially acknowledged, according to a recent report found, as the country has become the new front line in the Sahel conflict in Natitingu, in northern Benin. Reporter Henry Wilkins meets, meets witnesses to attacks. Violence linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group is spilling over the border from Burkina Faso into northern Benin. Villages like this one are under threat. A resident from a village further north who asked that his identity be protected to avoid reprisals from authorities said he lives in fear. Concerning security in my village, the atmosphere has not been the same for some time. We're all afraid because of what we hear, he told VOA. While terrorists have not yet come to his village, for other residents of the border area, terrorist violence spilling over from Burkina Faso, Niger and Mali is already a fact of life. This man, who also asked that his identity be protected from authorities, says a group of terrorists were passing through his village and sought refuge in a woman's home. When she arrived back from the market and asked them to leave, they killed her. He says that terrorists hit her because she started screaming, because she was scared when she saw their guns. They told her to be quiet and ended up killing her, he added. Analysts say that extremist violence spreading from Burkina Faso into West African coastal states like Benin, Togo, Ghana and Ivory Coast is the next stage in the Sahel conflict. Benin appears to be being singled out, with more militant attacks in the second half of 2022 than other coastal nations, according to data from the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. Asked whether the government has done enough to stop the spread of violence, Arnau Hoenu, a national security expert at Benin's University of Abome Kalavi, said, I personally think that little has been done, he says. 
The Beninese authorities may have been guilty of a blind wait-and-see attitude that cannot be explained. He adds that Benin could have imagined that the situation could degenerate and expand to the point of spilling over to the coastal borders, which is unfortunately what is happening. The Beninese government has sent large numbers of troops to the north to shore up security. Analysts say the military response is having an impact, but a recent report by the Klingendale Institute, a Netherlands-based think tank, found many more violent incidents occurred in Benin's north last year than the government has officially acknowledged. In 2022, one European journalist and several Beninese journalists were arrested while attempting to report on terrorism in the north. A consultancy that has been conducting workshops with communities in northern Benin to build resilience to violent extremism says many residents are too scared to talk about the issues. Annalise Bernard is with Strategic Stabilisation Advisors, a consultancy. Many of the comments that we got in the research was everyone and anyone could be a terrorist right now. We have no idea who's who, but we're scared to talk about what we're seeing and what we're concerned about. Benin's government did not respond to an interview request. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Natatungu, Benin. The French news agency AFP reports that a road crash in northern Senegal killed at least 19 people and injured 25. The accident took place when a bus and truck collided near Sakai in the Luga region. A witness told RFM Radio that the truck had tried to dodge a donkey on the road. On January 8th, two buses collided in the central region of Kafrin, killing 40 people and injuring more than 100. Observers blamed the accidents on driver error, poor roads and old vehicles. The government says it will strengthen road safety measures, including a move to limit buses and trucks to 90 kilometers per hour, ban night buses and outlaw the import of used tires. It also wants to prohibit placing luggage on roof racks to prevent vehicles from becoming unbalanced. But bus companies have secured a one-year delay on the ban. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Ugandan officials have confirmed switching from a Chinese to a Turkish company to build a proposed $2 billion railway line linking the capital Kampala to the border with Kenya. The railway aims to link up with one being built in Kenya to improve trade and travel between the neighbors. But analysts say Chinese investors poured doubt on the viability of the project. Halima Tumani reports from Kampala, Uganda. After eight years of waiting, Uganda finally terminated its contract with China Harbour Engineering Company in favor of Turkish construction company Yapi Marquez. Confirming the signing of a memorandum of understanding with Yapi Marquez, David Mugabe, the public relations officer for Standard Gauge Railway Uganda, says the change in contractor was due to financial challenges. The Chinese firm reportedly failed to convince Beijing to finance the project. 
Now, the Turkish farm, which is also building part of the Tanzanian railway network, is expected to submit a response to the government's request for construction in the next few weeks, paving the way for the procurement process to start. Mugabe tells Zioe that the Ugandan government is now looking more closely at whether or not contractors can help the government procure funding for the project. government decided to widen its nets and uh, open up a bit. And um, a Turkish farm has uh, expressed interest in partnering government. Now, it's early days. I should let you know that this has not been finalized. There is no contract yet with a Turkish farm. What we have is an MOU. Under the Chinese deal, the project was to cost Uganda $2.2 billion with 85% funding to be sourced by the contractor. Officials at the Uganda Standard Gauge Railway say they read between the lines when China's ambassador to Uganda said that after the COVID-19 pandemic, China had become more cautious on financing big infrastructure projects in Africa. Economist Madina Globa argues that it's likely China pulled out of the deal. I think it's possible they are being risk shy. Uh, we are not uh, bankable. They are safer going out of it than trying to look at other issues. We have had infrastructure things and they are not productive. So how best are you planning to make it even more productive? Samuel Mutabazi, the head of an NGO, Uganda Road Sector Support Initiative, says there are other issues that still need to be addressed for the project to make economic sense. If the procurement system was open enough and you had the competent international companies bidding, possibly we would have a cheaper cost, but also the SGL would have been up and running by now. Secondly, the relationship between the Kenya railways and Uganda railways also need to be clearly stipulated because, as you know, Uganda railways cannot, for instance, operate in Kenya. Even though the Uganda Standard Gauge Railway is meant to connect to Kenya via the Malaba border to connect transporters, Kenya has only built its section from Mombasa up to Naivasha. It's still not clear when the third phase connecting Kenya to Uganda will commence. Mutavazi says unless all the East African countries, especially Uganda, draw up a strategic plan for the next couple of years, the railway project may not be beneficial. Halima Athmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Chinese Foreign Minister Shen Gang has defended China's loans to African nations, rejecting criticism that Beijing's lending deals put borrowers in a so-called debt trap. Mayar Masekir reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The Chinese foreign minister rejected the idea that China's loans to African nations can trap the countries in a cycle of debt. U.S. officials have repeatedly accused Beijing of predatory loans to African leaders for large projects. But speaking at the newly unveiled African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Addis Ababa, Chin Gang dismissed that notion. He asks which Chinese projects in Africa can be regarded as traps. Chin says African people have the greatest say and they can make the best decision. He says China's contribution is concrete in bettering the lives of African people. We don't accept the unreasonable label of debt trap. Critics say Chinese loans for big infrastructure projects like Kenya's controversial $5 billion railway are calculated for political influence, not sustainable repayment. China has repeatedly rejected the notion and points to its debt relief efforts in countries that struggled during the pandemic, such as Zambia, the first African country to default on its loans during COVID. 
The Chinese foreign minister on Wednesday said relevant parties should work together to take on their fair share of easing Africa's debt burden, adding, let's compete on who can contribute more to Africa. Chin made the comments at a press briefing in Ethiopia at the start of a five-nation tour of Africa that included the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. AU chairman Musa Faki also spoke at the briefing on the issue. He says Africa refuses to be an arena of exchange of influence. Faki says we are open to partnership and cooperation, but our interests and priorities must be respected. Their comments followed the inauguration of the first phase of the African CDC headquarters, which China funded. Ethiopian media reported Chin signed a deal to cancel some of Ethiopia's debts to China during his visit, but the amount agreed was not revealed. Chin is on his first trip to Africa since being appointed Chinese foreign minister in December after serving since 2021 as China's ambassador to the U.S. The foreign minister will also visit Angola, Gabon, Benin and Egypt. Maya Misakar for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Scientists are sounding the alarm as ocean temperatures hit a new record. A research was published in the journal Advancing in Atmospheric Sciences and was based on observations from 24 scientists across 16 institutes worldwide. Michael Mann, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, talked to VOA's Carol Van Dam that until we reach zero emissions, ocean temperatures will continue to rise and extreme weather events will continue. You know, this is the fifth straight year now where we've set a new record for ocean heat content, for the amount of heat that's buried in the oceans. And it's important to understand that the oceans are really where you want to go to uh, to look at sort of the net effect of human-caused climate change and human-caused warming. Surface temperatures on the planet can fluctuate quite a bit uh, from year to year because of things like the La Nina or El Nino phenomenon. And in fact, 2022 was only in the top five or six years when it comes to global surface temperature. But when you look at the overall heat in the oceans, it was yet another record-breaking year. And it really drives home the fact that we are seeing in a very profound way the effect of carbon pollution on our climate and on our planet. With some of these other reports about global warming, it's been said over and over that the biggest polluters are not paying for it like the African countries are, and they're already feeling the brunt of global warming. And then you have some of these, um, you know, coastal African cities, big cities <coughs> right on the coast, that when you talk about ocean warming, I would imagine they're going to really be impacted. Cities like Dakar, um, Rovia, Accra, Abidjan, what are they supposed to do? Yeah, I mean, so the ocean warming is impacting us in, in so many different ways. Uh, It's contributing to the collapse of ice shelves off Antarctica, and that's destabilizing parts of the Antarctic ice sheet. Sea level rise, so it creates sea level rise, the inundation of our coastlines from that alone. Uh, But the increased ocean heat provides much more energy for intense hurricanes and tropical storms. The fact that the heat is occurring not just at the surface, but penetrating deep into the ocean uh, means that when these hurricanes churn up the waters, they're no longer bringing cold water to the surface. That's sort of a damping mechanism that tends to diminish the intensification of a hurricane. But because we're seeing that heat penetrate down below the surface and deep into the ocean, those hurricanes no longer churn up cold waters 
and that allows them to intensify even more. And so we see the combined impact in terms of global sea level rise from melting ice and these more powerful, more damaging hurricanes and typhoons and super typhoons. The net effect is inundation of our coastlines. And as you allude to, in tropical regions, um, places where they didn't really contribute that much to the problem. And in many respects, they're seeing some of the worst consequences and they have the least resilience, the least ability to deal with those impacts. And that's a real ethical quandary. And it's part of the, the complication of the ongoing negotiations. That's Michael Mann, co-author of a new report in the general Advances in Atmospheric Sciences and author of the book, The New Climate War. He was speaking to VOA's Carol Van Dam from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehayas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com on behalf of our producer Nicole Beckford and our engineer Al Santos thanks for choosing the voice of America